Well, resurrection uh, blessings and glory to all of you. He is risen. So I'll call us to order. Thank you for, uh, for attending the class. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that there's supplemental reading if you're interested. I'll, I'll leave, you may forget that I'll have Bob put them out on the thing in the foyer here. Um, other-centeredness and then humility in there. It's kind of a synopsis of what we're going to do for weeks and weeks and weeks. But if you'd like some supplemental reading, that will get you an extra credit at the end of the semester. So let's pray. Lord, as we celebrate the triumph of uh, the Son of God over sin and death, we confess He alone is able and more desirous even than we ourselves to raise our marriages to a place of life and vitality and blessing and glory and grace. Please do that. Use this class to that end. Uh, Take the truth. Help us with it. Uh, And we long for our marriages to reveal the glory of Jesus' love for his church. So bring that to pass, we pray, uh, by your power, in Jesus' name. Amen. We ended last week at the bottom of the page that begins to talk about humility. And so we're at the bottom of that page where it says, we tend to be blind to self-centered, self-promoting, and self-defending patterns in our hearts. Consequently, the humble, here's a mark of humility, grapple with the following truths. Number one, I'm more proud than I realize. Number two, I'm not as humble as I think. And number three, I need to change more than I know. So humble people, it's the bottom of the page that at the top says, what most beautifies us, humility, we least desire. What most soils our hearts, pride, we least detect. The back of the second page of the handout at the bottom. Thank you. Okay. So so as I've been a pastor for decades and decades, and I've seen relationships crash and burn, marriages crash and burn, Christian institutions crash and burn. And when you look amidst the wreckage, you never find humility. You find a lot of pride, a lot of defensiveness, a lot of I want my way by, by crook, but you rarely find humility in the wreckage of relationships that crash and burn. So that, that's another way of saying you can't do marriage without humility. It's the indispensable ingredient to it. And so when you get married and you put two sinners under one roof, you're going to have conflict, you're going to have problems. So don't be surprised. I personally was not sort of prepared for that when I got married, and so conflict was threatening to me. It was kind of shocking. I didn't... Janice and I didn't get good premarriage counseling that said, of course you're going to hurt each other. Of course you're going to have disagreements. Of course your sin's going to be exposed. Nobody told us that. That would have been really helpful to know ahead of time. So expectation is important. But marriage is going to expose your pride. Really like no other institution. Well, maybe you pick up basketball and driving on the beltway. But (laughs) There are things that get at our sin more than others more readily, and marriage is one of them. So here's a diagram to think about it. As I look at myself, there's things I see in myself that I acknowledge I need to repent of those. There's things I don't see. Same for my spouse. There's things she sees in herself, things she doesn't see. So where's the tension going to be? What's marriage intended to do if this diagram is accurate? What do you think? What's likely to happen? 
that other person is going to be the vehicle for bringing out the things you don't see. Uh, one counselor I've studied under at Westminster Seminary said, invariably, people get married, they find out they're different, and they have three different idols, and their idols are going to lock. Your idols are going to lock. You're wired to want this out of life, your spouse is wired to want something different, and those two oftentimes are on a collision course. Very rarely do people get married and they have the same idols. And that's by God's design. The only way for my idols to be changed is my wife sees those and she's God's instrument of sanctification, bringing that change about. So be prepared. Those of you who are going to get married, if you are married, sure, there's things you see about yourself that you're repenting of, you should, and things you don't see. So here's a practical way to go about this. I was doing premarriage counseling recently, and one of the people said to me, how do you approach it when there's something in the other person you think you need, you need to talk about? You know, there's a sin you want to deal with. So how do you approach that in your relationships? I mean, if you never talk about it, that thing's going to rot and hurt the relationship. If you go on the warpath, probably not going to work real well. How many of you like to be called out, proven to be wrong, I mean, we're so naturally defensive. We're so naturally self-defensive because we're self-promoting. So here was my suggestion to the, to, to the couple. I looked at the man and I said, take the lead. Periodically, sit down with your spouse and ask her, what are some things I'm doing that bug you? Are there some things we need to talk about? Are you seeing some sins in me that I need to repent of? Take the lead. That's a pretty disarming way to go about it versus, you know, you have this problem with this. Go ahead and ask. The problem is you have to really want to know if you're going to ask. Because if you ask and you don't want to know, you'll still get defensive. And what would make you want to know? It's what we looked at a couple weeks ago. The best reason to do your marriage well is the glory of God. The glory of God. Not your happiness, but the glory of God. And so God, if he's going to be glorified, will be exposing the sin. Do you see my point? Just take the lead. Hey, honey, I want to know what are the things that are... So after too long in marriage, I finally said to Janice, you know, there's things I see in me that I'm replicating that I see in my dad. Now, my dad's with the Lord. I'm not running down my dad. But I just saw there's a trajectory I could be on like him. I, didn't want, I said to Janice, I don't want you growing old with a grumpy old man, a complainer. It's just not good for her. So here's a, here's a sin. I can be a complainer, I can be judgmental, whatever. It's filling up like lots and lots of sins there. And sins I don't see. So I said, help me with that. Please help me with that. And she does. Very patient, very kind. Just like the Lord's patience is new every morning. Janice's patience is new every morning. Uh, she's in this thing for the long haul. So it's, it's a real picture of the gospel. So, and that's also what's at stake. When we are honest with each other and say, look, show me what I need to be working on. We're giving, we're giving Christ the place to be glorified in the relationship as the one who loves us in spite of who we are, right? The gospel is the one who knows you best, loves you most. Jesus sees all of this. She sees stuff your spouse is never going to see. Or you see. He still loves you. He's not leaving you. So that's part of what's at stake. The glory of God and... Uh, Revealing Jesus' love for us. So then flip the page at the top. 
Who needs a handout? Rock's got extra handout that looks like in the back, Rock. It's, it's hard to follow Mike if you go through the a warning and an invitation. <laughs> so, top of the next page. I should ask when confronted with others' faults, could that be me? Now, pride would have us think we're better than other people, we're superior. We would never do that. What's the truth? The truth is, but for the grace of God, you'd be worse than Hitler. But do you believe that? No, we don't. We're very self-righteous. <laughs> and if you've gone to church all your life, and God in his mercy has basically kept you out of bad trouble, you probably have a higher estimation of yourself than you should. It is only by the grace of God that you're not worse than you are. And if you believe that, what's that going to create? A humble, grateful heart. And that's an inviting heart. That's a heart that says, come on in. I'm safe. You can disagree with me. And uh, it, it's going to be safe to do that. Let's look at this quote from Paul Tripp. He wrote a book on marriage called, What Were You Expecting? <laughs> Isn't that just great? What were you expecting? <laughs> See, were you expecting to marry somebody and start to fight sin together? Were you expecting that? And were you expecting that your sin was going to be greater? You should. So here's what Tripp says. When the war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self, which rages in all our hearts, is not being won, then we enter marriage driven by little kingdom purposes. So what's he saying? You woke up this morning, and what's going on in your heart? A war. A war with indwelling sin. A war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. You woke up at war with sin this morning. Sin's at war with you. If you're one with Christ, you're at war with sin. Strictly speaking, you are, if you're in Christ, you're no longer a sinner. You're a saint. The Bible doesn't speak to Christians as sinners. It speaks to them as saints who struggle with sin. Christians struggle with sin more than anybody because we're aware of the battle. So Paul Tripp is saying, if you're not aware of this war where you are more kingdom of self wants more than kingdom of God, if you're not dealing with that war and you're married to someone else who is or isn't dealing with that war, there's trouble in River City. Because two people war at war with God can't possibly be at peace with each other. That means one of the greatest gifts you have to give your spouse, as we'll see as we move through the lesson, is, honey, I am committed to fight indwelling sin every single day. And when I'm bad at it, come to my rescue. Help me. Do it patiently. Do it humbly. Do it compassionately. Because that's what I need, just like Jesus is with me. Okay? But there's no hope for a good marriage if you're not first all about that war. So this is what Tripp is saying. The problem is that our spouse does the same thing. So, it will just be a matter of time before the carnage begins as our little kingdoms of one collide. It's only when a husband and wife each live in a purposeful and joyful allegiance to the plan's purpose 
and Lord of the kingdom of God, that their marriage can really be a place of unity, understanding, and love. Now, free from the debilitating anxieties of the wants, needs, and feelings, fulfillment agenda of the kingdom of self, they are free to rest in God's goodness, and because they are, they are also free to love and serve one another. Marriage is a beautiful thing that only reaches what is designed to be through the methodology of a painful process. Got it? Isn't that good? So we've got Tim Keller's book on marriage, Brian Chappell's book on marriage, uh, Larry Crabb has a book on marriage I'm going to alert, allude to in a second. Any others of you read really good books on marriage? I'll reference another one by a guy named Mike Mason called The Mystery of Marriage. Anybody ever heard of it? The Mystery of Marriage. So let me, let me, um, let me show you one way uh, th- this, this battle gets hard, hard to be fought. When couples start out, they are typically emotionally and physically on the same page. They're connected emotionally and physically. Right? At the altar, everybody's happy, giving themselves each to the other, and they can't wait to consummate the marriage. That's the way relationships start out. Over time, here's what typically happens as a rule. Over time, a man's need to be physically connected to his wife stays strong, laid into his life. That's why there's such things as a dirty old man. He has a strong sex drive. Laid into life. Over time, a woman's need, a woman's need to be physically connected to her husband drops. After childbearing, a certain age, that is not the most important thing to her. Over time, a woman's need to be emotionally connected to her husband stays strong. To her, that's the essence of relationship. It's emotional connection. Over time, as a rule, a man's need to be emotionally connected to his wife drops. He's getting that, met, that need met through his work. So you see this horrible gap that develops right here. Someone's physical needs are strong, the other's physical needs are low, Someone's, the wife's emotional needs are high, the man's emotional needs are low. And this is what creates a situation where 15, 20 years into marriage, Janice said to me, I feel used. Meaning, you're interested in a physical relationship, but not an emotional relationship. That was a wake-up call for me. So that meant, and that's why after a certain amount of time, men get into affairs, pornography, all this kind of stuff. Women are like, I know, you, I know you're interested in the marriage bed, but we're not emotionally connected. They really do feel used. And that's why most men... Say, what's wrong with your marriage? Not enough sex, not enough sex, not enough sex. You ask the woman, what's wrong with the marriage? Not enough emotional intimacy, not enough emotional. This is a disaster. A lot of you are living right there. I know you are. So it's one thing we sought to change in our relationship is we've got to do the emotional part better. And we're going to talk about what that looks like, hopefully, in this lesson. Okay? I warn couples in premarriage about this. I feel bad because... You know, they're not to the point where the wife has lost her libido, but that is typically coming. But it's not the end of the relationship. Okay? Let's look at it another way. And here I'll be stealing from Larry Kraft's book called The Marriage Builder. Anybody read it? The Marriage Builder? It came out in about 1980, The Marriage Builder. 
here's, here's how he goes about this. He says, we are all born longing for paradise. And that's right. And what marked paradise? Relational oneness. Right? Adam and Eve without sin. This was a great situation. Emotional oneness, physical oneness, everything was perfect. And because he's Adlerian in his psychology, he says we're all born basically asking the question, am I loved and am I important? The need for security and the need for significance. That's Adlerian. And I, I, you know, there's something to that. Our brothers up at uh, CCEF say better than seeing man as fundamentally needy is to see man, men and women as fundamentally worshippers. But anyway, for the sake of the diagram, we're going to run with this. So we're all sort of asking the question, am I loved, am I important? In the Garden of Eden, those questions were answered in plain sight. God's in the middle of it. Of course we're important. Of course we're loved. Now, we're no longer in the Garden, Toto. And so, what do we do to manage the pain of living in a fallen world? Boy means girl. So, the, uh, the, the connection relationally of two people that are beginning to get to know each other is very powerful. I mean, he's drooling all over me. He makes me feel like a million dollars, see? So these two needs initially are met in the relationship. But how long is that going to last? Until one disappoints the other. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. Now one thing you know about the human heart is it will only tolerate so much disappointment, so much rejection. And what do we do as a mechanism of self-defense when we're feeling rejected and we want to guard ourselves against disappointment? What do we do? We throw out laws of self-protection. How dare you? I'm not going to keep letting you do that. So I would submit to you that most people's marriages basically are two people spending the rest of their lives bumping off of each other's walls of self-protection. <coughs> Think about your own. That's an awful place to be. So, Larry Crabb calls this the Savior Syndrome. You're basically looking to your spouse to be your Savior. And when they're not, you resort to some manner of Second thing, you, because you have needs that you want met, you resort to some style of manipulating the relationship to get what you want. Tack on top of that, physical attraction. Physical attraction. Which everybody in the relationship wants. And what often happens is the physical becomes a temporary Anesthetic, is that the right word for pain duller? Anesthetic? It becomes an anesthetic to dull the pain of what is not happening at a heart level. It's pleasurable, but it isn't functioning the way God designed it. I'll show you in a second the way God designed it. So why do all the beautiful people of Hollywood break up? Not because they're not beautiful. It's because they don't have this. The whole thing is built on a faulty foundation. You're essentially looking to the other person to be your savior. And they were never constructed to be your savior. So you can't possibly achieve what God has designed. So what has God designed? Well, 
here you are, here's your spouse, where do you want their needs for significance and security being fulfilled? In Christ alone. And he's going to lead us singing it and during the worship service. In Christ alone. Janice doesn't need to wake up tomorrow morning feeling like if I'm not the perfect spouse for Mike, his world falls apart. It's too big of a burden to put on her. And vice versa. So the greatest gift you have to give each other is is you can wake up in the morning, roll over in bed and say, hey, good morning, I love you. I don't need you. In an ultimate sense. In an ultimate sense. I'm going to find my greatest sense of personhood in Christ alone. So, so when you do that, as we'll see, you become ravishingly beautiful because Jesus is beautiful. And so the grace, the patience, the understanding, the compassion, the loyalty, all that you need to make this relationship work, you're getting in Jesus. That's why you've got to have time with Jesus. You've got to have time in prayer and in the Word to drink from that well so you're becoming intoxicated with the love of Jesus so you actually have something to give the other person. Crabb calls this, he uses the word soul oneness and spirit oneness. Let's just call this spirit oneness in his book. Spirit oneness. We're each looking to Christ alone to be our sense of wholeness, the lover of our souls. So if you're dating or not married, you want to find someone who loves Jesus more than they will ever love you. Uh, Kelsey? Just a quick question. Um, sorry, but how does this play into the creation of the creation order where man is made pre-fall? He says you need a partner, and he creates woman. We're going to get to that because that, that's right. I just it seems and to be. It's a great question. I was speaking hyperbolically to say I don't need you. Of course we need our spouses. Because, because that settles the problem of companionship. So you're actually one step ahead of me. We are getting there hopefully this morning. It's a great question. Great question. We do need the companionship for which God made us. I was sort of speaking. But you're not going to die. You don't have to have that sense of dying yeah. if, if your spouse is not there anymore. You cannot because if you fall apart because your spouse died, then what? Yeah, yeah. So in a sense, because, because I wake up and say, I don't need you, but actually what I mean is, what I, all I need is Christ. We also sing that here, don't we? All I need is Christ. Mm-hmm. Having Christ, I am now free to serve you like you've never been served before. But we'll get there. It's a really good question. So then Crab says, rather than manipulate the other person, you are free, secure in Jesus, to minister to them, to put their needs ahead of yours. Because you're rich. You've got Christ. You're rich. There's money in the bank. You're not demanding of your spouse that they be something for you that only Christ can be. And so, so and you know, relationships are awful when it's each person doing their own subtle form of manipulation. No, now I'm free, drawing on the resources I have in Christ, to minister to my spouse, even when I'm not getting what I want. And that's love. Love is a commitment to seek the welfare of the other person, if even in the face of their worst. It's Jesus dying on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That love brought into your marriage frees you to minister to them for their good. On top of that, you have physical attraction, but with heart connection. 
So the oneness, and we're going to talk about oneness in, in this lesson, the oneness you have here is meant to be expressed in the marriage bed. The openness. We're, we're, we're emotionally naked and laid bare before each other. God wants that expressed in the marriage bed. And, and, this, and this creates a wonderful cycle here that lasts long into your life. I used to tell couples that you can have a great relationship irrespective of the physical part of it. I don't believe that. God has created the marriage bed as a, an expression of what's happening at a heart level. And we all know if this isn't here, this, you're not inclined there. They go wonderfully together. So that's, that's one way to think about it. So there's hope in a world, rather than bumping off of each other's walls of self-protection, in Christ, we're free to minister to each other and have this intimacy, this oneness expressed uh, in a full or body and soul connection. If you have that, you won't feel used. So let's move to... Uh, to number five, unless there's a comment or a question. Will you honor your marriage as a covenant? A covenant is a binding legal contract between two parties. Therefore, marriage is primarily an institution of law, which goes against our culture's notion of marriage as an arrangement of present affection. So I still fill out marriage licenses given by the state. Still happening. The state, if you're going to get married, you've got to get a license from the state. That's Reflecting this. I don't know how much longer it will be, but that's the way it is. And it goes against our culture's notion of marriage as an arrangement of present affection. Marriage promises future love, tender, caring, sympathetic faithfulness tomorrow. Again, I referenced Stephen Curtis Jackman's song, I Will Be There. Remember that one? Anybody remember that one? It's a good, it's a good song. I'll be there tomorrow. That's the heart of this covenant. The marriage vow, based on law, not emotional states, is unconditional, holding in any situation, for better or for worse, virtue or poor, and at all times, till death do us part. I mean, there's real thought given to the, to the vows. This means we cannot run our marriages the way we want to. The covenant is public before God and these witnesses, unconditional, accountable to God and the state, and acceptable of God's regulations for marriage. So it's interesting, if, if in the traditional wedding ceremony, which I've done so many times, I've got it memorized, I could probably do it almost word for word right now. But in the beginning of the ceremony, you know, the bride, typically the bride comes up, dad's standing between, here's the bride, here's the dad, here's, here's the groom, and I'm here. Before we have the giving of the bride are the questions of intent. John, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife, to live together after God's word and the holy state of matrimony? Will you love her, honor, keep her in sickness and health? forsaking all others to be faithful only to her so long as you both shall live. I'm asking that question, it's future, it's, I'm asking future, will you? He's promising future. And he's doing it in the presence of her father. Really, as her head as it were right there. And then comes who gives this woman to be married to this man. Then comes the giving of the bride. So the question, he is stating his intention, then she gets to do the same. You know, Julie, will you have this man to be your wedded husband? These are the questions of intent. Their future before God and these witnesses. And then he gives her away. And I, I maintain if you have a daughter, the longest distance in the world traveled is the distance between when you put her hand into her, his hand. That's the biggest distance in the world because the most, if you have a daughter, the most precious, one of the most precious things in the world to you is her heart. And you're putting her heart in that, entrusting it to another man's hand. <sighs> you felt that three times? Yes. Four? Three. 
You know what I mean? But you say it sucks. <laughs> so I want, when I haven't done that yet with Laura, my daughter, when I do that, I want every assurance that I possibly could have this side of heaven that he loves Jesus more than he loves Laura. Yeah, and that's what, what Laura's looking for. My daughter's looking for. She knows that. And for his sake, that she loves Jesus more than she loves him. And parents, you want your kids to see that. We love Jesus more than we love each other. That'll make them secure because they will intuitively know Jesus is unchanging. Mom and dad, well, they're kind of fickle. They change. <laughs> they're not perfect. But Jesus is... Okay, so when folks live together because they don't want the messiness of a divorce, they're really saying, I'm not so committed to this relationship that I'll vow to it. The covenant bond secures the environment for arduous pursuit of intimacy, one fleshness. So let's, let's tease that out. This is really where uh, Kelsey was asking the question. Let's talk about a biblical vision for intimacy. Again, why do we need a vision? Because at any time you won't be able to sit down at the table and say, hey, are we accomplishing what we set out to accomplish? And if you don't know where you're going, you'll probably end up somewhere else. So God wants intimacy here. He wants, he wants something that reveals the love of Jesus for the church. So intimacy is, number one, the opposite of loneliness. From the very beginning, marriage was God's solution to loneliness. Genesis 2.18, God saw that it was not good for the man to be alone, so he created a helper or a companion suitable for him. God settled Adam's main problem of loneliness with an incredibly wonderful companion called a woman, bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. In other words, note a creature so much out of his own fabric that no other created thing could possibly satisfy him like her. And the text says she was suitable to him, corresponding to him, because nothing in the animal kingdom would do the job. She's a special creation who shares his physical, psychological, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual DNA. This means marriage is first a covenant of companionship. So let me ask you before you look at the handout, what are some marks of companionship? Anybody, you can just shout it out. What, what do companions do? What do they enjoy? Time together. They spend time together. What else? They feel safe with each other. Safe? And why is that? What, 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 why do you feel safe? Because I know there's nothing can be so bad that I can do that will chase him away or... Good. Break the bond. Okay, good. Companions are they're, they're stuck together. Good. What else? Thanks, Cindy. What do companions do? What do friends do? Pick them up when they fall. Pick each other up when they fall? Okay, support. Good. Encouragement, support. Thank you. They work together. Okay, cooperate. I had a college professor who was an atheist. And, uh, and just side story, he used to come into the, this is 1970s, he'd come in and smoke in the seminar room. And, uh, and you know, he'd lit up a cigarette, and I'd come into this in my chair and just like, back away as subtly as I could. So at the end of the school year, when we were graduating, I saw him as the people were registering for class, and I went up to him, and he acknowledged, he, he caught me, he saw me doing that. Anyway, <laughs> Dr. Schubert, yeah, I knew I saw you doing it, backing away from the smoke. He said, never fall in love on a vacation. He's an atheist. Never fall in love on a vacation. 
What was he saying? Because it's not the real thing. It's not the real thing. You got you got to get in situation. Can, can you cooperate? Can, how do you work together? What's it like when you know, fill in the blank? When you're stuck in traffic. So, you know, just meeting each other on weekends and everybody's <laughs> free and everything's good. And we got we can go out to lunch and take walks and that's all we do. You're not finding out what this relationship is going to look like when the rubber hits the road. Never, it was Dr. Schubart at Gettysburg College, never fall in love on a vacation. It's the only thing I remember he taught me. <laughs> okay, so what, what's Marsha's companionship? I've listed a couple on the handout. They have fun together. They laugh at themselves and their presence. They have nothing to prove. They celebrate differences. They can take criticism and give space to the other for their needs. Create space. You're interested in this? Honey, I want you to do that. You're interested in this? Let's make space for that. Oh, we have these common things we pursue together. Companions. So think about that. So now you have a litmus test. Hey, are we expressing? Do we look like we're friends? I drilled this into my daughter ever since she's in high school. You want to marry your best friend. Form friendships, form friendships, form friendships. Those are the healthiest relationships I've seen in you know, decades of premarriage counseling. As I say, how did you all meet? Why do you want to get married? Well, we were friends, we were friends, and then we decided to take it to another level. They built a relationship on a foundation of friendship. They're going to have a great marriage. Because our kids are gone. If we're not friends, we're hosed. Our kid, Laura's been out of the house basically when she go to college, 2010 or four, 10. So we've been just us for the last nine years. If we don't have a friendship, we're hosed. Then we're, as Janice would say, just two ships passing in the sea that night. And again, I, if you've got kids in the house, you are modeling the kind of spouse you want your child to seek. You're modeling that. B, it's a product of a new union. Uh, can I get a time check from somebody here? 10.04. 10.04? Thank you. It's a product of a new union. Intimacy doesn't just happen. It's not automatic. It's results of a pattern. In Genesis 2.24, God says... For this cause, the cause of what? Accomplishing companionship. Man shall leave his father and mother, he shall cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Or weave, just to create a little paradigm there. This oneness is so celebrated and sacred that God uses it to picture our oneness with Jesus Christ in Ephesians 5. So one flesh is not principally referring to the physical part of the relationship. It's to be joined as one person, uh, having the United in purpose, goals, faith, hopes, and hurts. So there's three components to it. Leaving, that means you move out from your parents, you become a de- your own decision-making unit. One of the questions I ask in pre-marriage counseling is, is anybody going to have leaving issues? Are there parents that want to micromanage your relationship? That's got to be dealt with. Your parents are no longer your head. You're a decision-making unit. Cleave, it means to be glued, and it refers to commitment and communication, knowing the other person by putting them first, and then weaving become one in companionship. So I asked the question, how would you recognize this if you were fulfilling it? Essentially, intimacy is an open heart. You're sharing secrets, thoughts, desires, fears, dreams, hopes, and hurts. You're, you're transparent. You want to be known, and you want to know the other person. You're cognizant of your impact on them. Do you know the way you impact your spouse? by things you do or don't do. You've got to know. You don't have intimacy if you don't know how you impact that. 
If you're not sure, ask. I don't want to ask. Why? Pride. And pride is going to kill the relationship. Um, you cherish being understood and appreciated. You want to run to that person with your deepest joys and sorrows because you trust them. You're transparent in their presence with what you're ashamed of. And they help you protect, they protect you from yourself. Now there's an amazing contrast in Proverbs 4. How many of you are familiar with Proverbs 4? It's the, the man who looks out his window and he sees this naive guy and he meets a prostitute in the street. And you could call it anatomy of seduction. It's just a it's the whole chapter is that. But what I want to point out about Proverbs 4 is although verse 21 of Proverbs, excuse me, 7, with her many persuasions she entices him, with her flattering lips she seduces him, and she actually breaks down this barrier by kissing him. She kisses him. She breaks down a barrier that should exist between two strangers. She collapses that barrier. She kisses him. She says, I've come out to meet you. Just you. Baloney. You liar. It would, the next guy come down the street, you say the same thing to him. Anyway, what the text says about her, though, is that in verse 10 is she is cunning of heart. And the word cunning means to be closed or guarded. She doesn't reveal her real motives or her real person. So there's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of electricity. There is um, what you could call physical intensity, but no intimacy. Good case study, the opposite of what God wants in the relationship. So the hall, hallmark of intimacy and wholeness in a relationship is described by God as they were both naked and not ashamed. Meaning, in their one fleshness, Adam and Eve appreciated their differences, were not threatened by anything, there's nothing to hide, no fears, no doubts, no questions. That's, that's the beauty of it. So as soon as sin enters, what are they doing? Hiding, fear, blame shifting, it's all gone to pot. In a fallen world, it means you are free to celebrate the other's strengths and can pity them in their weaknesses. You won't despise uh, uh, their blindness to their faults. Wholeness or intimacy is being accepted in the face of your faults. It's a picture of the gospel. Thoughts or questions? Concerns? Anything from your own experience? But here's one thing that's really important. If you are vulnerable with your spouse and you say, hey, I want you to know this about me, and you go vulnerable on them, you reveal something that's shameful, something you're struggling with, it is exceedingly important that the spouse to whom it's being uh, confessed, that that spouse does not pile on. No piling on. That's a football term for when the play is over and a guy's on the ground, Guys come and jump on top, and that's a 15-year penalty piling on. If someone is vulnerable, you don't go, you know, that you're right, and you, there's also more to it than that. You're also this, this, this. If someone's vulnerable and you pile on, they will never be vulnerable again. No. So if somebody takes the risk, you need to receive that risk with very gentle, sympathetic hands saying, you know, I'm probably worse than you. Probably worse. Thank you. So intimacy is risky business. It requires self-awareness. I know what I can and can't give to the relationship. I know what I'm prone, how I'm prone to hurt the relationship. I know my role for moving us in a healthy direction, mutual edification. Truly intimate spouses are vulnerable, honest, at liberty to fail or look bad. You can take the lead asking, hey, what are some things I need to be aware of that need changing? That's a mark of intimacy. You're, you feel free to ask that. What do I need to change? 
What do we need to stop doing? What are things I can continue to do that are meaningful to you? Where am I missing the mark? And it's going to stretch you. It's going to send you to Jesus because you're going to be asked to do things that you can't do. It's going to send you to Jesus, and that's a really good thing. So what if they reject me for discovering I'm something they don't find attractive? Ever since we got kicked out of Eden, we are all definitely a fear afraid of rejection because we already know God's rejected us. We already know, right? We're out of Eden. We're not right with God in our heart of hearts. We know we're not right with God. And so there's this deep suspicion in our hearts. If you really knew me, if you saw me as I was, this is where the fig leaves come in. We'll talk more about them later. But they're trying to cover up their shame, and fig leaves just don't do it. So we resort to all kinds of subtle strategies to cover our shame, whether it's being brash, shy, funny, whatever it is. There's all kinds of good things we use to cover our shame. But there's a suspicion that if you really knew who I was, you would reject me, which is why we have to put up a certain persona, a certain facade. It's when those come down, you know you're getting intimacy. Only the courageous can be so vulnerable, and only the gospel can produce that. The gospel is your heart is more wicked than you ever imagined, but you're more loved than you ever dreamt possible. That's from Jack Miller of World Harvest fame. So the love of Jesus for you, despite your sin, anchors the soul and liberates it to care boldly for the other. You can only draw near to each other as you draw near to Christ. I think we'll end there. We out of time? <coughs> Twelve after. Thoughts, questions, or concerns? I don't mean to squelch discussion. Some of it's just, just hard to discuss, you know, and I just have a lot I want to say, which Surprise, surprise. So, I have a question. Yes. Some people don't marry there when they are not friends. Without what? Some people got married when they are not friends. Right. So according to this, there was a good foundation. What do you say? You gotta build a friendship. You gotta you gotta go back and, and look at that false foundation. Maybe there's some repenting to do. And say, okay. That doesn't mean we're doomed, but now we need to rebuild a new foundation. And God can do that. He makes all things new. Anything else? I'll pray for us. So I think I said last week, you know, living in a bad marriage is the worst place in the universe to live. It's just awful. I don't know that by experience. I have a nice marriage with Janice, but I know people that do, and it's absolutely terrible. Let's pray. Lord, it's good to confess that this is hard. Uh, It's not your fault, it's ours. It's because of sin and selfishness and pride. Thank you that there are graces created in your marvelous economy and found in the Savior that can save us from this painful place to live. We acknowledge humility is indispensable. We acknowledge we're not humble. We are more proud than we know. We need to change more than we know. Thank you for pursuing us, Lord Jesus, and ordaining conflict in our marriage to show us how much we need you, how much we need humility, how much we need the gift of repentance. Lord, I pray the things you've looked at today you would take and use to help us to heal us, to strengthen us, to bring about 
Repentance and joy, sweet companionship. Uh, for those who have founded a, a marriage that's not upon friendship, give the grace to go back and change and undo. You're a God who redeems things. Nothing's impossible with you. So we thank you for the hope we have in this. And Lord, as we look together to our worship here in 15 minutes, we ask for your presence, presence of your spirit, that all that is done is offered to you for your glory, Lord Jesus, our risen King, to impress upon our hearts and minds the beautiful reality of the resurrection. Help us as we sing of it and hear of it. Help me. Lord, I'm nothing. You're everything. If you don't give my words power by the Holy Spirit, they're useless. So we pray together for the word of God to be especially helpful to the people of God. Shepherd your people. Love them, Jesus, through, uh, through my message and, and every other component. Thank you for the many hands that have made our worship together possible here. Protect us as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, before you uh, go, we, we don't intend for...